I would ask of you now, if you have your Bibles, to please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Today we are going to wrap up our study of the, excuse me, wrap up our study of the attributes of God. And I hope you realize that as we have looked at these, some of these we have dove, dived pretty deeply into, we really have only scratched the surface of what God reveals of himself in Scripture. And so I would encourage you to, to get into the practice of looking through your own study to see what the Scriptures say about God and, and try and take those statements and apply them into some of these categories that we've talked about in the attributes of God so that you may grow in your love, in your knowledge, in your worship of God more and more throughout your life. We will never for all of eternity ever perfectly or completely comprehend who God is. He is infinite in all of his attributes, yet we will spend eternity praising God and learning more and more about who he is. And so I'd encourage you to continue that process even now through your own personal study. Whether you supplement that study with authors like Stephen Charnock or A.W. Pink or even a, a hip-hop artist by the name of Shy Lin, who has some pretty solid rap songs about the attributes of God out there for people to listen to. I would encourage you to continue to study the attributes of God um, throughout your life. Today we are looking at the wrath of God, and we do so by beginning with John chapter 3 and verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. Let's pray. To the great and holy God, may we be moved to see Your glory more brightly. May we see the glory of your holy wrath, and in seeing the glory of your wrath, see the glory of your love, mercy, and grace so much more fully. By the power of the Spirit, open our eyes to the glorious truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. In July of 1741, Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach at a church in Enfield, Connecticut. Now, the reason he was invited was because eight to ten years prior to that, a movement had started within the 13 colonies, which we now call the Great Awakening. Through the preaching and teaching of the Word, people were being converted on, on an amazing level within those colonies. However, this church in Enfield, Connecticut, that invited Jonathan Edwards had seen the effects of this revival in the, in the state, in the colony around them, but had not felt it themselves. And so the preacher, the pastor of that church, wanted Edwards to come and to give a sample of the preaching that had sparked and sustained this revival. 
So on July 8th, 1741, Edwards ascended the pulpit and delivered a sermon that has become part of the DNA of American literature and is studied even today. Now, while many people have not read the sermon, I would say that a majority of us in here have heard the title of this sermon and have made assumptions about this sermon. The sermon is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In the sermon, Edwards lays out from Scripture the doctrine of God's wrath wrath, as it rests on those who reject the salvation, the free offer of grace that God gives to humanity. Edwards explained that the unregenerate are under the wrath of God. Edwards explained that God does restrain his wrath in this world as an opportunity for sinners to repent. And Edwards proclaimed that the only way to avoid the wrath of God is through embracing the finished work of salvation that comes through Christ and through Christ alone. Now, an interesting thing happens according to the diary of the minister of that church. In the middle of giving this sermon, Edwards had to stop because there was an outbreak of repentance. There was an outbreak of worship. There was an outbreak of giving God glory for his wrath. And while it may have been 10 years late, the revival of the Great Awakening came to Enfield, Connecticut. Our contemporary culture will not stand for the proclamation of a sermon like sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are so hyper fixated on the love of God that we refuse to acknowledge that God's love cannot violate his justice. It cannot violate his holiness. It cannot violate his righteousness. And in refusing to acknowledge this truth, We have deluded ourselves into thinking that God has set aside his wrath and is going to accept everyone regardless of their desire to be accepted or not be accepted by God. But hear me as I say this, God's wrath is real. And without repentance and belief in Jesus, you, your friends, and your family will experience the full weight of God's wrath against their sin. We're told in John 3.17, which we'll look at a little bit fuller a little bit later, we're told in John 3.17 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in verse 36 of John 3, we are also told that whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Every human being has the wrath of God resting upon them, abiding upon them. We all stand condemned before God unless we repent. So as we consider God's wrath today, we will first define what God's wrath is, or at least compare it to our wrath, and then we will look at some characteristics of the wrath of God. So what do we mean when we say that God is full of wrath against sin? Typically, when we hear the word wrath, we have a very vivid picture in our mind, and it usually involves a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, and maybe a little bit of violence. We typically save the idea of wrath for the hothead or the abuser or the occasional cliche that hell hath no fury like or hell hath no wrath 
like a woman scorned. For you and I, wrath is typically an extreme reaction that something to something that happens to us in our lives, usually at the hands of someone we deem or declare to be our enemy. The husband who explodes in rage when his wife forgets to tell him of plans that she has made for the family. The mother who yells and screams when the kids still haven't cleaned their room. The employer who employer who curses and belittles because the project was not finished on time. These are the pictures that we typically think of when we hear the word wrath. And these are pictures that are motivated by pettiness and pride. They are marked by extreme reactions and sinful responses. So when you and I hear that God is a God of wrath who hates sin This is what we typically assume about God, that he's up there just waiting to react, just waiting to unleash his unrighteous rage against those who somehow don't measure up to his will. But to truly understand God's wrath, we need to understand that God's wrath is a function of his holiness a function of his glory, a function of his moral perfection. J.I. Packer says that God's wrath is a, quote, righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection towards moral perversity in the creature. What do we mean by righteous anger? Have you ever been watching a movie where there's a a protagonist and and an antagonist, a, a good guy and a bad guy, And the producers really want you to have this visceral, angry reaction to the bad guy. You know what they typically do? They typically have that bad guy abuse a dog. Because all of us have that visceral visceral gut reaction of anger whenever a dog is abused, whenever a pet is abused. That's a righteous anger that bubbles up within us because something wrong has happened. God has created all things, and as we are called to love God, we are called to love his creation as well. That means that we seek to protect those animals and those people who need protection. And when we see somebody violating that call upon us to love God's creation, we have this reaction within our gut that we know something is wrong and we need to fix it. The problem with our wrath is sometimes we see the wrong things as wrong. The things that offend us rather than the things that offend God's law. Or we overreact. But God in his holiness, God in his perfection, God in his righteousness is the perfect law. And when that law is rebelled against, when that law is broken... He has the appropriate reaction to the law of the infinite God being made nothing of. God does not lose control of his wrath. God is calculated. He is direct. He is precise in the expression of his wrath, and it is a just wrath. It is an anger. It is a punishment that will fit the sin Any sin violates, any sin attacks God's holy moral perfection. And for that reason, God hates sin. 
and he sets his wrath against sin. Wrath is the burning, bitter fury of God's holiness set against those who are and those who remain in rebellion against God. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is taken to the throne room of God to receive his commission. And he falls flat on his face, not only in worship, but in realization that because God is morally perfect and Isaiah is far from that, that he deserves to be disintegrated because God hates sin. And we will see in the future when Christ returns that he will set that hatred upon the sinner as well. God is a God of calculating, precise, directed, and holy wrath. So what does this wrath look like? Well, first, it is a wrath that is consequential. In other words, it is a consequence of the actions that we undertake. Galatians chapter 6, in verse 7, Paul says this. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God is not just angry at humanity because He is angry at humanity. He is angry at humans because they have violated his law. They have shook their fist in his face and they have put their will far above his will. They have turned their back on him and they have said, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want you dead. And because of that, he has set his wrath against sin and against humanity. Sinful actions will reap the wrath of God. The prophet Hosea says, you have, reap, you have sown the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Now this seems harsh to us. But brothers and sisters, we need a God who hates sin. We pursue justice in our world. We, we seek to right wrongs. But you know, but do you know that there are rights, there are wrongs in this world that can never be righted in this world? Sometimes they are wrongs that don't come to light. Whether it's abuse, whether it's theft, whatever it is, sometimes people in this world get away with injustice. And they are prosperous in the midst of it. So we need to know that God's wrath will set the scales right. You and I can set aside our need for revenge and pursue the love of our enemy because we know that it is only God in his wrath against sin that can achieve perfect justice. This doesn't mean that we set aside criminal prosecution where that's appropriate, but it does mean that we leave the outcome of an imperfect justice system in this world in the hands of the holy, the just, the righteous, and the wrathful God. God's wrath is just. And it is consequential. We reap what we sow. Secondly, God's wrath is abiding. Look to the gospel of John chapter three once again. And listen, as I read these words, 
Verse 17 and 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 36, whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, God's wrath is set upon us is set upon every human being in this world. One of the imagery images that, that Jonathan Edwards used was a human dangling above a fire held by the thinnest of threads. And God is approaching with his scissors. That is the state of humanity without Christ. God's wrath abides upon humanity. That's why John 7, 3, 17 says that Jesus didn't come to condemn or to judge the world because the world is already condemned and judged for the sins that it commits. God's mercy and common grace hold back the effects of God's wrath right now, but at the death of the unrepentant sinner, the fullness of God's wrath will be unleashed against them. God's wrath is consequential. It is abiding. It is also catastrophic. Think to the accounts in Genesis 6 and 7 of the flood. God looked at humanity and saw that every thought of every man and woman was only evil all the time. Doesn't leave a whole lot of wiggle room for any good thoughts. And he destroyed the earth by water. Think later on in Genesis to Genesis 19 as the fire and the brimstone fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, their sins of arrogance, their sins of pride, their sins of ego, their sins of injustice, their sexual sins. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh in Egypt and Pharaoh says, no, I am God in Egypt. I will not listen to your God. And so God sends the plagues upon Egypt. Natural disasters, even today, are examples for us of God's destructive wrath. And they are meant to call us to repentance. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we hear these words. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Don't fall into the trap as we do many times within the evangelical church of seeing a hurricane hit a certain city or an earthquake um, strike a certain region and go, look, see, they were great sinners and God has judged them. When we see natural catastrophe, we need to be reminded that, yes, God will exercise his catastrophic wrath against sinners. And we need to beat our breast, fall to our knees and repent and say, oh, God, keep me from your wrath. 
Help me to turn toward you. God's wrath is abandoning. We oftentimes sit and read through the scriptures and we think about the fact that when Jesus returns, there's the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is the lake of fire that all of God's enemies will be cast into for all of eternity. But do you realize sometimes God exercises his wrath even now? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. One of the most dangerous places to be as a culture, as a country, as a church, is to be in a place where the gospel of God is no longer heard. Where the church is so ineffective that people are free to pursue whatever shameful lust they seek to pursue. As the church wanes in the West, as Europe and America long more and more to hear a gospel message that is not there. That is a sign of God's wrath upon that culture. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourselves as individuals in a place where, man, it was so hard to give into this temptation in the past, but now it's easy and whatever means to get out of this temptation that God used to provide for me, well, it seems like he's taken that away. It's a dangerous place to be as well because God's wrath before it pours out will abandon. God's wrath is eschatological or linked to the last days. When Jesus returns, we will see the fullness of God's wrath poured out upon his enemies. And we will see it for all of eternity. Every Christmas, it seems that there is a large number of choirs and chorales that do handles Messiah. There are many, many churches around Christmas time that will spend time singing the Hallelujah Chorus. You realize that is not a Christmas song. That comes to us from Revelation 19. What happens in Revelation 19? Well, the saints in Revelation 19 get an answer to a question that was asked all the way back in Revelation 5. How much longer, O Lord, until those who hate you and hate your church and persecute your church, how much longer until they see your justice? God says, just wait, just watch. And as the full boiling, bubbling cup of God's wrath is poured out upon unrepentant humanity, The saints in heaven cry out in song, hallelujah, for our Lord, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Yes, God's wrath abides on people now, but we will not see the fullness of that wrath until he returns. So God's wrath is consequential. God's wrath is abiding. God's wrath is catastrophic. God's wrath is eschatological. And hallelujah, brothers and sisters, God's wrath is redemptive. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. 
and think about this for a little bit. I would encourage you to go home today, this week, spend time meditating on Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Because the original audience that would have heard this would have heard some of these descriptions as descriptions not of mere injury to a human being, but as descriptions of God's wrath. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering Men hid their faces from him. Men hated him. Men refused to lift him up and worship him. Brothers and sisters, the person being described here is the servant of God, which we are introduced to in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, he is described as the servant of God who will not break the bruised reed, who will not snuff out the smoldering candle who will deal gently and tenderly with the people of God. And the people of God hated him. All of humanity hated the one who came to bring them God's compassion, who came to bring them God's good news, who came as a perfect man. We talked about God's wrath being consequential. He lived a perfect life. He sowed holiness. He sowed righteousness. He sowed glorifying God. And he reaped wrath. He took up our infirmities. Not his own. He took up your infirmities. He took up my infirmities. He carried my sorrows. He carried your sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him and by his wounds. You and I are healed. He sowed righteousness. He sowed holiness. And the Lord laid upon him your iniquity, my iniquity. That wrath that should abide upon me for all of eternity fell upon the cross, fell upon him. We would not have redemption without a wrathful God because that wrath had to fall somewhere and it fell upon the cross. I hope you can see why we study God's wrath, why it's important to study. God's wrath is just as glorious as any of his other attributes. I remember as I studied through this, a couple commentators brought out this illustration and it reminded me of something a little over 31 years ago. I walked into a jewelry store to buy a ring. And the jeweler there at Marshall's Jeweler and Jewelry in Lakeland, Florida, brings out this a handful once she figured out, you know, exactly what kind of size, what kind of shape I was looking at. She brought out this, this, I don't know, it seems like a handful 31 years later, but she brought out a bunch of diamonds and we kind of narrowed them down to two or three. And after we narrowed them down to two or three, she pulled out this 
very clean, very pristine black velvet pad. And she set those two or three diamonds down on that black velvet pad. And you know what happened to those diamonds as they sat down upon that black velvet pad? They exploded in brilliance. What changed? The lights didn't change. I don't think the jeweler did a little sleight of hand and swap out the diamonds. Nothing changed except we had this black velvet pad underneath the diamonds. That's why we study God's wrath. It's just as glorious as his other attributes, but when we compare his grace, when we compare his love, when we compare the fact that he chose us from before the foundation of the world, when we put God's wrath behind that, the glory of God's grace just explodes. When he did preach sinners in the hands of an angry God, Edwards did not stop with the wrath of God. The last portion of his sermon was focused on the free offer of salvation through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus faced the catastrophe of God's wrath. Jesus faced the eternal eschatological nature of God's wrath. And he reaped wrath where he deserved to reap glory. Have you turned to God in repentance? Have you forsaken and put to death your ego and put your eternity in the hands of God's faithful service, Jesus Christ? If you haven't, don't wait. God's wrath abides on you and you will feel the fullness of that wrath at your death. Speak to myself or to one of the elders to make sure that you fully understand the grace and the mercy and the beauty of that that is offered to you. If you have done those things, if you have forsaken and put to death your ego in repentance and put your eternity in the hands of God's faithful servant, I'm here to tell you, stop living as though God's wrath rests upon you. Yes, God disciplines us for our sins, but not because he's angry or wrathful at us, because he loves us. We are his children. And we may feel his discipline in times of sinful rebellion, but his discipline is motivated by love and not wrath. And also, if you have put your hope in in Christ and in Christ alone to avert God's wrath upon you, I'll leave you this one last exhortation. Don't go alone. There are way too many of our friends and family members who have God's wrath abiding against them. Don't think you are doing them any favors by not telling them about that. You are denying them the glory of God's grace and love. I say that as much to myself as I say to you. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot fathom or understand the truth that what I deserve is no longer mine but was paid at Jesus' death. And that I have the opportunity through his work to reap what I have not sown, and that is a holy and righteous life. Lord, help us to keep your love and your wrath balanced in such a way that those around us know 
who you are and what you have done. And Lord, for those that we know, that we love, who have your wrath abiding against them, open their hearts, open their eyes, help them to see not only the glory of your wrath, but the glory of your love and grace before it's too late. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Take this benediction with you, this blessing. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Jesus promised I am coming quickly, so we say come Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www.arpchurchfairly.org. That's www.arpchurchfairly.org. Have a blessed day.